Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning. Well, I didn't know that you rarely brought in guests to come and share, so I'm honored to be here. I think I came here a few years ago and shared with your men's group, right? Maybe four or five years ago. We had some nice food then, I think, as well. So food is definitely the way to my heart. You can ask my wife. <clears throat> I've been on staff with Athletes in Action for 19 years, or we've been on for 19 years. And uh, we first uh, served as chaplains down in South, in Florida. Who's the, who's the Florida person here? So I, I feel you. We were with the Dolphins for 11 years, so this was 34 degrees. It's pretty rough. Uh, but I'm, I'm grateful to come and share uh, with the Lord's place on my heart, and I'm loving the theme. Uh, we, you talked about worship, and my message is going to be all about worship, and is your worship for real. So let me uh, dive right into this um, since we've prayed. I'm going to pray at the end, but I, I want to make sure we have enough time uh, to share with the Lord's place on my heart. So we're going to start with John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Should be on the screen. It says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So I'm going to tell on myself a little bit here. Uh, when my wife and I first joined AIA, again, we were chaplains for the Dolphins. And we were one of the, we were actually the first team to go over to London and play against the Giants. The first NFL game ever played in London, Dolphins against the Giants. And our owner, Wayne Heisinga, who passed away a few years ago, he was so excited about this opportunity that he brought two planes, okay? He filled the first plane with all the coaches and, and players, and he allowed us to bring our wives as well. And then he brought a separate plane with all of his friends and guests, and there were maybe 25, 30 of his guests that came over with him. Treat us to a great time. Now, I knew that uh, we were going to have some pretty special chapel services uh, because uh, the wives are going to be there. And as y'all in ministry know, when the wife gets involved in ministry, normally that kind of encourages the husband to get involved as well. And so I was anticipating a few more players to show up in chapel that Saturday night. And I was looking forward to having a, a, an audience with them, having them meet my wife as well, in hopes of them being more involved in the local ministry when we got back to the States. But then I also was told that Mr. Heizinga wanted me to do a second chapel for his guests the next day. So the plan was Saturday night chapel with the players and coaches and their spouses, and then Sunday morning chapel with Mr. Heizinga and his guests. And so I am planning this, this message, and I'm, and I'm studying it, and I'm praying, and I'm looking forward to delivering and doing a great job of sharing. And y'all, I did a message uh, Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, a message around that psalm. And as I am preaching this message on Saturday night to the players and their wives, I'm hearing in my head, this is horrible, Corwin. 
You're doing a horrible job. These guys are never going to come back to chapel. These wives, none of them are going to be ever, they're never going to get saved. So I'm hearing this condemning voice going off in my head. And I know now that was the enemy. But back then that night, I was just like, man, I could look at their faces and they were falling asleep, you know. And at the end of that message, you know, they all stood up and walked forward and gave me, you know, pleasantries. Thank you. I'm like, yeah, right. That was horrible. I'm sure you'll never come back again. Then the room clears out, and I took my message, and I was so disappointed. I crumbled it up, and I threw it in the trash can right outside the hotel room and said, I'm never doing this message again. I was so hurt, disappointed. But I had a problem because I planned on preaching that same message the next morning. (laughs) So now I go to my room, and I'm trying to figure, okay, let me see if I can pull out an old message, freshen it up a little bit, and deliver it. Now, I can't remember all the details, but there, were, there was computer issues, and my power cord, I think I left my power cord to my computer in the States, and the business center was closed. Something, bottom line is, I could not figure out a new message to share that next morning. I stayed up all night. Six o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in the hallway in the hotel on the floor. And I'm like, chapel is in one hour, and I got nothing. Y'all, I stood up, and I looked down, and I saw that trash can. (laughs) I reached in that trash can, pulled out the message, put it on the podium. I had to flatten it back out. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Y'all, and I was thinking, I hope nobody comes. Please don't come. Sure enough, the first one that comes is our security guard, and he comes in and makes sure everything's all set. The second two people to come were Mr. Heising and his wife. And I'm like, all right, here we go. And then more started filling in. And then more started filling in. And the room became filled where our security guard had to go in, and he was scrambling now, going to different rooms, pulling in chairs, and I'm sitting there, it's cracking up inside, nervously cracking up, thinking, this is crazy, right? So I delivered the exact same message, and obviously you know what probably happened, the exact opposite response. I mean, it was, and the sense of God's presence was there. I know God was moving on hearts. He was moving in my heart. And afterwards, it was just a number of just affirming, yes, this is exactly what I needed to hear. And I'm like, wow, God, wow. What was God teaching me? What was God rather exposing in me between those two scenarios? And I know it was Corwin. It's not about you, son. It's not about you being up there trying to impress people with your ability to articulate and communicate. It's not about you. Your job is to be faithful, available, teachable, and humbly serve me. It's not about you. In Luke chapter 3, when Jesus began his public ministry, he first went to be baptized by John. Now, this baptism perfectly displayed the undeniable reality and intimacy of the Trinity. 
after Jesus was baptized, when he ascended, God the Son ascended from the water. God the Spirit came and descended on him like a dove, the Scripture says. And then God the Father spoke from heaven, proclaiming, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What an awesome proclamation that Jesus heard. What a wonderful public and personal authenticating moment for Jesus. Now, right after this experience, Scripture says that Jesus went off into the desert to fast and pray and to be tempted by the devil himself for 40 days. Now, we don't know how many temptations were thrown at Jesus during that 40-day period, but we know at the end of his fast that three of them were mentioned. The first two, the first two temptation, temptations, Satan begins by questioning Jesus' identity. He says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of this temple. Now, I believe the first part of these two temptations really reveals quite a bit about Satan's strategy or his, intent, his intentions for all temptations. It says, if you're the son of God, he said, if you're the son of God. First of all, Satan tries to confuse Jesus about his identity. Even after Jesus hears this clear proclamation at the, at the baptism, Satan starts off with, are you sure God was right when he said that about you? If you are the son of God, he says. And Satan still persists today at getting you and I to question the things that God has clearly spoken. It's the same tactic he performed on Eve in the garden, right? Did God really say you shouldn't eat from the trees in the garden? So temptations typically start, all temptations, I believe, typically start with getting you and I to replace God's emphatic, authenticating period with a satanically inspired question mark. Just a little question about what God really says. And he succeeds, and when he succeeds at doing that, getting us to question what God has clearly said, he's able to open the door and usher in even greater lies and deceptions. The next one, he says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, Satan despises, you know, all healthy intimate relationships. I so loved hearing about y'all's uh, experience, Taurus and, and uh, Zach and Megan. Did I say that right? You know, that was awesome to hear, right? Intimate relationships are so critical for God's plan <laughs> to reach the world. It's through relationships, right? But the intimacy between a father and a child, that relationship, that intimacy is so special. And we know that Satan despises that special bond that takes place 
I mean, look at the state of this nation alone. Statistics show that the absence of engaged, caring fathers is in the home is a large part of the reason for the rampant brokenness, dysfunction, problems, challenges. Let me just read this statistic from the Department of Justice that said suicide from children who are growing up without fathers. The suicide rate is 63% of youth. 90% of all runaways, of all homeless and runaway youth, 85% of all behavioral disorders, 71% of all high school dropouts, 70% of all juveniles in state-operated institutions, 75% of all adolescent patients in substance abuse centers, and 75% of all rapists motivated by displaced anger, children without fathers. Y'all, God is not just the almighty creator. He is the God who wants to be Abba, Daddy, Father to you and I. And if you don't know him that well, let me encourage you to embark on a journey of getting to know your heavenly father as Abba, Daddy as well. And I realize that this concept of having a loving, caring father can be hard to grasp for those of us who maybe had neglectful fathers, or maybe weren't there at all, or abusive fathers. But I would encourage you to begin a journey of healing that, those daddy wounds because those daddy wounds could be preventing you from experiencing the kind of intimacy that the father wants to have with you, his son or his daughter, right? I grew up in Bakersfield, California, and uh, grew up, the grand, my grandfather was a pastor, had 14 aunts and uncles, and nine of my, five of my nine uncles were ministers. My dad was a deacon, but my dad was a harsh man, right? I mean, you, wouldn't, you would not know if you met him. He was a harsh man. He was very strict. And, for example, when uh, it was time for us to receive discipline uh, for, actually, it was when we were reporting our report cards to him, me and my siblings would line up outside of his bedroom and one by one go into his room and show him our report card. Every A on our report card, we got $3. Every B, we got $2. A C was nothing a D or an F was a spanking. And so every quarter of every year, you either walked out of his bedroom paid or rubbing your backside. <laughs> but I'll never forget, my dad would always end his spankings by saying these words. Now go to your room. Think about that. What was that communicating to me as a child? Not only is my father disappointed with me for letting him down, for not performing to his standards or the standards he expected of me, now he doesn't even like me and doesn't want me in his presence. And for decades, y'all, that mentality, that thinking about my earthly father really was projected upon my heavenly father. And so every time I would fail God, 
Guess what I would do to myself? And so it impacted my experience of intimacy with the Lord. So I love spending time with other people, you know, meet with life regularly and others, and we process this kind of stuff. Because intellectually, I know that God doesn't do this to me, but emotionally, I'm still there. And I got to deal with that on a regular basis. The next one, if you are the son of God... Not just some dude in the sky, y'all. Not just some big man upstairs, right? Satan does not want you and I to understand the authority communicated in this proclamation. He does not want you and I to fully grasp whose we are. We are the children of the king of kings. That means all rights and privileges and power come with that. We're the children of God, the maker of heaven and earth. Satan doesn't want you and I to live victoriously. So he wants us to question whose we are every day. So important to get to know God. So I suggest to you, that every temptation you and I face is a direct assault on the assurance of our identity in Christ, on the relationship and the intimacy we enjoy in him, and on the authority we hold as children of the king. I believe every temptation, this is his tactic right here. So after Jesus masterfully resists these two, the first two temptations, I do wonder if Satan just totally becomes totally exasperated and gets frustrated and finally shows his cards in the third temptation, right? He takes Jesus to a high mountain and says, look, look, Jesus, look, I'll give you all of these kingdoms and their glory. If you would just bow down and worship me. That's what Satan was really going after all along. He didn't care about Jesus making bread. You think he cared about that? Or floating down. He wanted worship from Jesus. Of course, Christ slices him up one more time with the sword of the spirit. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Why does God command us to worship him and him alone? And why does Satan crave worship so much that in my best Stephen A. Smith impression, he would have the unmitigated audacity to attempt to appropriate worship from Jesus? I mean, come on. Satan knew who Jesus was, and it still didn't matter. He wanted to be worshipped. Worship is defined as the supreme honor or veneration given in either thought, word, or deed to a person or thing. The supreme honor and veneration given 
in either thought, word, or deed to a person or a thing. There will always be worshipers because God has made us creatures who worship. It's in our DNA. It's our nature to worship. The problem is, the problem occurs when you and I misappropriate that worship. And we begin to assign the supreme honor and veneration to other things or other ones that don't meet the criteria of supreme. I grew up thinking that I was a worshiper of Christ. I was baptized at a very young age in my church. Went to church every Sunday. I was a perfect little church boy. You know, I was in the youth choir I was also the choir director, believe it or not. I knew all the answers in vacation Bible school. And I was a model church boy on Sundays. Monday through Saturday, I lived for me. And y'all, to be honest, what I wanted most in life was pleasure and popularity. I wanted to feel good and be happy all the time. And I loved having people know me and like me and be impressed by me and excelling in sports, being a generally good guy, getting good grades in school, gave me lots of opportunities for pleasure and popularity. It wasn't until my hypocrisy was exposed in college at UCLA when I became under heavy uh, conviction that I really wasn't a true worshiper of God at all. You can't sing in the heart, you can't sing hard in the choir on Sundays. Live for yourself Monday through Saturday and think God should be pleased with your worship. So under heavy conviction, I prayed and I reached, I committed my life to Christ. And I realized that I had really been worshiping my own little trinity called me, myself, and I all along. That's really who I was worshiping. And I was deceiving myself into thinking that God is cool with that. And I need to be honest with you. I still have to die to this self regularly, this this self-desire for attention or approval regularly. And I love having people in my life who love me but are not impressed by me. (laughs) People who who care more about my walk with the Lord, me being a man of integrity, than they do their own friendship with me. That's critical to have people like that in your life. It would be unwise for us as believers to think that even though Satan tempted Jesus to worship him, that he would not also try to or continue that temptation on us every day. But I believe Satan's a little bit more subtle when it comes to you and I. Let's look at an example of this in Scripture. In John chapter 3, let me read this passage. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, And he remained there, and with them was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. 
Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has given him, unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist had been on the scene for quite some time now preaching this message of repentance and forgiveness of sin. John's sole purpose was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And John had become very popular, right? His fame spread across the region. And John's disciples were apparently basking in this newfound prestige and attention, the success they were experiencing. They had become celebrities, and it felt pretty nice. Then Jesus enters the scene, and he begins his own public ministry right down the street, right down the river from John. So, so for a short time, the public ministry of John the Baptist overlapped with the public ministry of Jesus the Christ. All of a sudden, John's disciples noticed that all the people were going to be baptized by Jesus instead, and they panicked. Wait a minute, John, this brother who you baptized, he's down the river. Now everybody's going to him. What are we going to do, John? Our market value is tanking, John. Should we rebrand ourselves? Should we tweak our messaging to get the crowds to come back to us, John? This is a problem. Think about it, y'all. This was a problem to them to have people going towards Christ. We're losing business, they were feeling. John's disciples were actually jealous of Jesus' ministry. Now, I first, when I first saw this passage decades ago, I, I couldn't believe that they would miss the whole, whole point, right? How? But then... I, working in the sports ministry especially, you could see how the, uh, the addiction for, of attention, boy, that's so strong. You know, it really is worship in many cases. These athletes are experiencing, right? And that, and that worship is poisoning the minds when it's not deflected, when it's received, because you and I are not designed to handle worship. Only God is. Our bodies cannot handle process worship from man because we're not designed to be able to handle it. It poisons us. We see it every day, not just in athletes and entertainers and politicians, but you and I have got to be careful about basking in our own performances in our own goodness, in our own success, in our own wealth. We've got to be careful. 
And we've got to be careful when we are, we've got to be careful about celebrity ministers. Be careful about that. Use discernment and wisdom there as well. I love John's response. Fellas, praise God that his ministry is growing. God has ordained it to be so. I am trusting the Lord that he is increasing and I am decreasing. That's the way it was meant to be. Now, I'll end with this story here because I I grew up really liking a lot of Western movies. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to endorse this movie because it's not a family-friendly movie, but... I really enjoyed it a few decades ago when it came out. It's called Tombstone. Anybody seen that movie? The main character of the show was a guy named uh, Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell there. Um, But for those of you who watched the movie, who was the real star of the show? Anybody remember? Doc Holliday. He stole the show, right? Played by Val Kimmer. Didn't he have the best one-liners? I'm your huckleberry. <laughs> Say when. Raunchy as this guy was in the movie, he was the coolest cowboy on the set. And he ended up being pretty much the hero. Now, it's not so much nowadays, but back in the day, early on in Hollywood, when movies were created, you typically had one star and a supporting cast around that star. And the supporting cast, their jobs were to live in such a way or act in such a way as to make the stars' roles shine. Usually these stars don't become Academy Award winners unless they have a really solid, strong supporting cast around them. But according to these standards, then Tombstone was probably a poorly written movie because a member of the supporting cast outshone the star of the show. Could it be the case today that Jesus is not the Academy Award winner in people's lives because of the lackluster effort of his supporting cast? You and I. Or maybe there are too many Doc Holliday wannabes happy with the attention or happy to have people more impressed with them than with the true star. One of my former co-workers called it photobombing Jesus. <laughs> Here's Jesus, all his great work, and look at this picture of him, and there we are. <laughs> and the onlooking world is confused as to who they should be paying more attention to when they look at that picture. You and I or him. There's room for only one star on this stage. And Christ deserves every moment, every hand clap of praise, every heart that beats in gratitude, every ounce of glory, every tear of joy, every shout, hallelujah. All the applause goes to him and him alone. Are we giving all the glory to him today? Or do we have aspirations to share in a little bit of that for ourselves? Make no mistake about it, the enemy still craves our worship. 
And as long as, I, as long as you and I don't live, keyword there, live in such a way that gives him the supreme honor and veneration, then Satan's craving is being satisfied. We have succumbed to the third temptation. The enemy is fine when our worship is contained right here on Sundays, like, I, like it was for me all my life. But he is not fine when you and I take our worship to the streets, to the marketplace, to our homes, during our vacations, when we're living in such a way that gives him the supreme honor and glory and veneration. You and I are not the star. And we've got to stop wanting center stage. We've got to give that stage to him because he deserves it all. What more must he do? What more must he give to earn that spot in our lives? Because of our secure identity in Christ, the intimate relationship we have with him, and along with the authority we hold to be more than conquerors, may you and I continue to walk humbly and by grace and mercy, let's keep Satan totally frustrated and exasperated because our worship is directed to the only one who is qualified as supreme. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we are... We are in awe of you when we really stop and consider you, when we stop and think about who you really are, it is overwhelming. Father, forgive us for those times when we treated you as being underwhelming or when we thought of you as being underwhelming and thought more highly of ourselves than we ought. Father, continue to bring us back to a place where our worship is for real because our worship is consistent and, and is consistently given to you and you alone. Teach us to love you more than we love ourselves, God. And let us walk in the grace and power you've given us to be a light in this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.